All right, we can go ahead and, and get started here. Um, what's in a name? So I stole this slide uh, Seth put together last uh, week or the week prior, I don't know which. Uh, Exodus overview, so far we've been going through uh, the first three classes. Um, structure and overview of the book of Exodus. Uh, then, you know, the importance of remembering our past, uh, which is really what we're reading here is, is our past. Um, textual meaning, um, two weeks ago, and then last week started into this uh, idea of, of revelation and, and various things that God reveals. Well, we started with the, the tribulations and kind of the need um, for a savior. Uh, today we'll talk about uh, names a little bit. Uh, then we'll, we'll have uh, some more revelations and then get into some institutions here. The law, uh, divine presence is how we'll finish it up. So uh, like I said, here we're going to talk a little bit about names. Um, does someone want to read uh, to start off Exodus 2:23 uh, through 3:6. Thanks, Vanna. So what's the first thing you guys think of uh, when you read this, uh, particularly maybe the end of chapter two? What does anything pop out, come to mind? Any questions that arise? Here's one that, that came up for me. Uh, where has God been, right, this whole time? You know, if you, if you look at it, uh, a long time has passed. Obviously, they've they've uh, been in Egypt. King of Egypt dies, and then it says, "And God heard their moaning." Right. So, what's he been doing up to this point? Let's just plant that question here for a minute, and we'll come back to it. Uh, the Book of Exodus in the Torah is called Shemot, which, uh, you know, as we saw with uh, with the last Genesis class we did, uh, the names basically come from the first significant word in the book. So Genesis is called Bereshit, which is beginning. So here we have Exodus, Shemot, which means names, right? So here we start out with a, a nice list of names. Sons of Israel came to Egypt with Jacob. They each came with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, and all those who descended from Jacob were 70 individual. And Joseph was in Egypt, and Joseph died, and all of his brothers, and all of that generation, 
So if you've ever taught any of the kids' classes, you know that list. Boom, down pat. There's even a nice song that goes with it. Um, so let's look at some other names uh, in Exodus. <clears throat> uh, let's start with uh, Pharaoh. What's Pharaoh's name? We don't know, right? He doesn't have a name. What's verse 8 say? Chapter 1. A new king. Okay. So no name. How about any of the Israelites' names? What's verse 9 say? Pharaoh said to his people, Look, the people of the sons of Israel. So people, right? Here's one. Midwives. What are their names? This one we actually do have names. Shipra and Pua. Moses' parents. Which we find out later, but what does Exodus tell us their names are? Chapter 2, verse 1. A Levite man and a Levite woman. Is that right? How about Pharaoh's daughter? Pharaoh's daughter, right? And then uh, the Egyptian and the Hebrew. So what happened? We're talking about names. We got the book is called names, and then all the names go away, except for these two, which we'll come back to. Um, where the names go? So let's go back a little bit and see kind of what we might know about names so far in the Bible. Um, we don't have to go back very far. In fact, we can't. We're in the second book, so. We'll just go back to, to Genesis. Um, can someone read Genesis two nineteen through twenty? Now the Lord God has formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So what was the, literally the first job that man had? Give names, right, to all these animals. Um, can someone read 2.23? So the first quote, the first speech we have uh, given to Adam, um, he, he comes up with a name, woman, right? Which uh, we'll see uh, a little bit more on that here in a second. Um, it's interesting, the first time he speaks is only when there's another human around, right, to, to speak to. Um, and then, uh, oh, just a side note, if you, uh, if you Google image Adam and Eve... Not a lot of it is, is PG, so just get your picture and, and get out of there quick. Or help your kids if they're doing a, doing, doing a project. Um, sorry. Uh, can someone read Genesis 3, verse 20? So here we have um, the first name really, in the Bible. And whether you call Adam or Eve the first name uh, kind of depends on how many thes you find in Genesis. Is it the man 
or is it Adam? I don't know. I don't, I don't like such debates like that, but um, here we have a name, right? Um, I wanted to read a note here about Eve. Um, so yeah, for she was the mother of all that lives. Uh, this is from a, a Hebrew Bible translation. I just want to read this. Like most of the explanations of names in Genesis, this is probably uh, based on folk etymology or an imaginative playing with sound. In the Hebrew here, uh, the phonetic similarity is between Hawa, Eve, and the verbal root Haya, to live. Um, interesting little note, has been proposed that Eve's name conceals very different origins, for it sounds suspiciously like the Aramaic word for serpent. Um, could she have been given the name by the contagious continuity with her wily interlocutor? Or on the contrary, might there lurk behind the name a very different evaluation of the serpent as a creature associated with the origins of life? So something to think about while you're brushing your teeth tonight. <laughs> but in any case, we have uh, names. And what are they signifying? Relationship, uh, Adam to Eve, man to woman, uh, or also purpose, right? Eve is the, the mother of all living things. So I think we can maybe go with this idea that uh, we've, lost, uh, we've lost names. Maybe we've lost some sense of relationship uh, or purpose. So we asked a question earlier about God. Uh, maybe we can rephrase it. Where has Israel been this whole time? Uh, do you think there's a case to be made for their playing a role a little bit in, in God's silence? Um, quick little aside here. Uh, Genesis fifteen twelve through 13. And it happened that as the sun went down, then a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, a great terrifying darkness fell upon him. And he said to Abram, You must surely know that your descendants shall be as aliens in a land not, that should be not their own. And they shall serve them, and they shall oppress them 400 years. So basically, uh, you know, God is just... What's happening in Egypt is just what God said would happen, right? So is there any fault to be had for anyone? Uh, we'll come back to that here in a second. But let's go to the midwives. Can someone read uh, Exodus? Let's add a few more verses to that. Maybe start in uh, 15 and go to 21. Thanks. So what's interesting is this is the first time that this phrase appears uh, exactly in this, this form in the Bible. They feared God as if it was an, an action of fearing. Uh, the, only, the only time before this we have Abraham is called God-fearing after he, uh, the trial with Isaac and after uh, he takes Isaac up to, to sacrifice him. Uh, so what, what do you think we can learn from the midwives 
about what it means uh, to fear God. Angela. Yeah, I, that's, I mean, that's it, you know, pretty stand up to evil, right? And I guess implicit in that is first knowing, right, what's, what's right and what's not. Um, and then the, the other thing, you know, I think is interesting is, um, you know, specifically standing up for life, right? For, uh, we're, we're quite literally talking about lives here, a uh, child's being born, children being born, um, you know, I think those two things are, in themselves are, are pretty powerful. Um, I wanted to read a, an idea uh, that I came across here uh, on the midwives. Um, so bear with me here for a second. So it talks about, you know, Abraham was called God-fearing. It says, the midwives, however, enact fear of God. They do it. Using the verb uh, form, they feared God, conveys a sense of a moral act that mobilizes energy not to do what the Egyptian king had told them. They let the boys live. This active fearing God, which generates life for the boy babies, is essentially a, a refusal to see as Pharaoh sees, to see difference. Uh, traditionally, they are understood to have nurtured the babies, providing them with food and water. Um, that's from the Midrash tradition. This fear of God is a classic heroic response to the edicts of tyrants. Uh, or as a rabbi suggests, the very extremity of the edict forces a new moral vision upon the midwives, a radical choice uh, between life and death. So what does Pharaoh then do? He questions them, right? He says, he doesn't just ignore it. He says, why did you do this thing and let the children live? Uh, and, you know, the, the passage I was reading here says, really these are the, the first words of resistance uh, in Exodus, Right, the midwife said to Pharaoh, For not like the Egyptian women are the Hebrew women, for they are hardy. Before the midwife comes to them, they give birth. Uh, interesting, this, the, the verb for lively uh, is, is really the same root as what we found in Eve, hayat, uh, which, which basically just means lively. Um, basically, they're saying these women are alive. Uh, before uh, we can come, they give birth. So basically they're saying, um, the Hebrew midwives say that Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. An alternative realm to Pharaoh's Egyptian realm is sketched in their words. Uh, in the Hebrew women's world, life and birth happen irrepressibly. So the question, you know, going back to where has Israel been, uh, does, does it seem like the midwives are the only ones who can see this alternative to Egypt? You know, what's, what do you think is the broad theme among the, the population of, of Israelites? They lost their names. Maybe they can't even see any, any alternative, right, to, to Egypt. Can someone read Ezekiel 20, 5 through 9?
So that makes it sound like kind of a, a more active turning away from God. Um, but I, I don't even think it has to be that, right? I think you can kind of just fall into the motions, right? And this is my, this is where I am now. I'm in Egypt, you know. And how, how often do we maybe feel that in our own lives? Or maybe we don't feel it, and that's the problem, right? How often do we find ourselves in this situation where um, you kind of just fall away or you kind of just stop praying actively or stop, you know, I think that's what this whole book is about, um, is this, uh, we'll talk a little bit next week about this Egyptian disease, right, um, that, that we're trying to relate uh, to ourselves. And it's interesting, they knew what was going to happen, right? Uh, we read Genesis fifteen twelve through 13, which, which they didn't have the book of Genesis, but they had the oral tradition, right? What does it say right after that? But upon the nation for whom they slave, I will bring judgment, and afterward they shall come forth with great substance. So don't we know what's going to happen too, right, in our lives? Um, Seth asked a question last week, can we be redeemed without suffering? Um, so I'll ask kind of a corollary. Can we be redeemed if we don't know we need to be redeemed? Any thoughts on that? I, I love that. So repeat it for the, the mic here. I always tell myself I'm going to do that and don't do a good job of it. And I'm not going to say it as well as Angela, but just in summary, you know, she asked the question, can we be redeemed without hope of being able to be redeemed? Um, and that's great. You know, it, it, maybe it's not even knowing that we need to be redeemed. Maybe you know you need to be, but you've given up, right? Um, but yeah, I, I like that that idea. And that's kind of what's going on here, right? Um, or so it seems. Uh, anyone have any other thoughts? I don't think I've heard this explanation of redemption before. The, uh, it sounds like you're saying that in order to be redeemed, it's, you have to have a part in it. Uh, you have to initiate it. There is a 
Sure. Right. So can you accept it if you don't know you, you need it, right? That's kind of what, what we're getting at here. Yeah. Right. Yep. No, it's, that's kind of where we were going here. And, um, you know, at some point later on in, my ver- in this, we can talk about it. But it does kind of remind you of the uh, Romans 5.8, right? That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So, um, yeah, that's exactly right. Kind of like... Not like we can do anything, right? But we need to acknowledge it. You know, you need to be aware of it. Um, can someone read Malachi three sixteen through eighteen? So we start out here with those who feared the Lord, like the midwives, and then, like Angela brought up, um, we end with discerning between the righteous and the wicked. So just another uh, emphasis on that idea of, of maybe that's part of what it means to, to fear God actively. Um, okay, so here we go. We have another name, Moses. Uh, can, yeah, it's right up here, Exodus 2.10. And she called his name Moses, and she said, because I drew him out of the water. Uh, we read a lot of these verses last week, so. Um, but just a note on Moses. Uh, Moses is an authentic uh, Egyptian name, meaning the one who is born, or basically son. Uh, what, how it's translated here, and, and in the Bible we see this, this phrase added, um, it relates to the Hebrew verb, verb mashah, to draw out from water. Perhaps the active form of the verb used for the name Moshe, he who dries out, draws out, is meant to align the naming with Moses' future destiny of rescuing his people from the water of the Red Sea. So it's, the translations are kind of funny here. You know, I don't think Pharaoh's daughter is saying this is why she, she drew him out. I think that's what the Israelites uh, have added later because she she would be looking at an entirely Egyptian perspective. So she basically just called him son, right? Um, can someone read Exodus 2, 11 through 15?
Thanks. Uh, so in biblical narrative, uh, often the first dialogue, the first words uh, that we are assigned to someone kind of help define their character, give a look into their character, uh, which is kind of interesting when we go back to Adam's first words. Um, you know, it's the relationship with woman, right, that kind of defa- defines man. Um, you know, we could probably do a whole class series on that. But what can we learn about Moses then um, from his first words, which I'll repeat here? Uh, why should you strike your fellow? What does Moses care about? What's what's some insight into his character? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, unity, like, yeah, I think that's great. That was uh, was one I hadn't written down here, but that's for sure. Yeah, why do we want to make this harder for ourselves, right? We're, Which reminds me of John 17, where Christ is praying for unity. But we're sort of in the same position. We're, in a, we're strangers in a foreign land. Yeah. That's what we're called. So, so don't, don't fight. Yeah. Right, so yeah, definitely the importance of unity, and and I think you guys talked a little bit last week, this idea of foreigners, you know, being in a foreign land, and that's that's who we are today. Um, what about, uh, do you think Moses cares a little bit about justice? Right and wrong? Um, you know, it says he said to the one in the wrong, so he's already making a, a presupposition about, you know, who's, what's going on here and, and some kind of value judgment, at least a little bit. And then what does the, uh, one of the men say? So who made you judge over us? So I think this is an interesting idea that, that maybe we'll keep coming back to is this um, or we at least see a seed of Israelites kind of resenting Moses a little bit. Um, and maybe it's not Moses so much as kind of what he stands for. Like, he's meant to deliver them, right? And you, like we kind of talked about, there's kind of this, whether they've lost hope or whatever it is, they're kind of uh, set at odds with this man who's really supposed to, to lead them out of Egypt. Um, so then Moses uh, flees. Uh, what do you think he's thinking when he gets out of town? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no turning back. Um, 
he's kind of now on this kind of what God has planned for him, right, which, which he has no idea. Um, and it takes him quite a while, as we'll see, to figure it out. Um, Mm-hmm. Track you down. Yeah. Um, uh, I thought this little note in the the uh, midrash was was interesting. Um, it says he would ponder in his heart and say, "There is evil talk among them. How shall they be worthy of redemption?" Uh, clearly, the Midrash does not speak only of a few wicked informers, but of a characteristic evil talk uh, that prompts a question about the very possibility of redemption, uh, which we'll see Moses, uh, when he's talking to God, kind of has, has this idea uh, expressed. He says, Then the matter is known, translates then almost as a confirmation of his suppressed anxiety. Uh, he knows what he has expected earlier, um, that there's something rotten going on in the state of his people. Um, and, you know, maybe it says what concerns him is not his own immediate danger, uh, but that he sees his people um, maybe in a way that makes their redemption a lot harder, right? Um, so let's return to this question. Uh, can someone read the, the end of chapter 2 again? Just start with... Uh, Here, I'll just read it. And it happened when a long time had passed that the king of Egypt died, and the Israelites groaned from the bondage and cried out, and their plea from the bondage went up to God, and God heard their moaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God saw the Israelites, and God knew. So here we have God kind of boom, 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 rapid fire uh, inserted into the narrative, whereas really up to this point he had been absent. Uh, specific to the, the Hebrew midwives, it talks about God. Um, but that's it. After, you know, up until this point, uh, God's been, been pretty quiet. And then we have, uh, have these four, uh, kind of a perception and then a, uh, you know, an emotional uh, attachment here, perceptive, uh, and then a realization. Um, what brought all these actions of God about? What did the Israelites do? And the Israelites groaned from the bondage and cried out. So do you think this means they were not groaning up until this point? Or some were, some weren't. They didn't reach the, the majority threshold. What do you think? What do you think here? And kind of another question: Do you think it's implied that they were crying out to God, or were they just crying out? Any thoughts on that?
Mm-hmm. No, that's right. Like you said, uh, God is always there, right? When we say God was silent or God hid his face or whatever the case may be, that's a, that's a human perception, right? That's, that's how we're experiencing it, right? Um, that has nothing to do with, uh, with, with you know, God's place and, and where he actually is. Um, Yeah, I think it's interesting, this kind of setting a stage and like, who is this God? And I kind of had the thought of, you know, so they know the timetable that, that God gave Abraham. You think anyone was putting little tally marks up and saying, okay, we're, okay, oh, oh, we're getting close. Something might be about to happen. Uh, I don't know, but it's, it's an interesting idea. Um, you know, I think, let me just read this this little passage, which I thought was interesting, and and just maybe some stuff to chew on. And and I think uh, overarching this is is kind of what Cindy said: this idea that um, how we perceive God it may not actually reflect how God is working uh, in our lives. It says four synonyms uh, for crying are used here: um, anaka, zaka, shava, naka. So they all sound very similar. But here's remembers. Sees, or this can also kind of mean like take note, takes note of, sees, knows. Um, there's a sense of violent opening of the channels linking God and the world. Uh, this is signaled in human experience by a sudden outbreak of wailing, screaming, groaning, howling after the silence of the early phase of the narrative. Um, from God's viewpoint, the narrative describes a moment of transformation. God, in one instant, focuses his awareness on them. Uh, the Midrash, they would say, he no longer hides his eyes. Uh, and God knew, for I know their pain. Um, it was, however, only because of their cry that he received their prayer in his compassion. Um, so basically, this is kind of the, the turning point of the whole book here, right? Um, so back to this cry, what, what immediately preceded it? The cry. When a long time had passed, what happened? Yeah, the king of Egypt died. Uh, what, do you think there's anything significant about that? Commentary here says, uh, there's a lot of speculation, but it says, perhaps they hoped for amnesty and are disillusioned. Um, perhaps only in the official mourning period for Pharaoh do they have the leisure to contemplate their own anguish. I think it's interesting, this idea of, you know, oftentimes in our life, something has to happen, right, to kind of snap you out of that, um, you know, wherever you find yourself, uh, whatever your Egypt is. Um, and the final point of the process is, their shriek for help from the bondage rose up to God. That is, the cry is transmuted into a prayer. And I like that phrase, because... 
you know, a lot of times we don't know what we're doing. We know what we're feeling, um, but, but God knows. Um, and, you know, we asked a question earlier whether they cried out to God or they just cried out, uh, right? God heard it. Um, Right, it's kind of the the devil, you know, versus... Sure, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think it's a... Whenever I think about this story, I think it, this, this, this people went from being a family, a very small family, to being a nation. All they knew was captivity. Um, when I think about this story, I'm not sure that this is a people that accepted themselves as more than slaves. Uh, it doesn't take long to be an Right. We're a group of underclass animals, you know, and and, uh, and so the severity of their situation got to a point where they cried out. I loved your question. You know, did they cry out to God? Did they not cry out to God? It doesn't really matter if you're a dad and your baby's crying. It doesn't really matter if he's crying for you or not. Yeah. He's crying, you know. And, um, and and that's what I love is that God God rushes to their aid and sees them and knows them. And I love these words. Um them that there is something that is so much more sacred, and the message for that in our lives is is incredible. Um, we accept a name that Satan has given us, and we accept an identity that the world has given us. And uh, I love how the severity of the situation brings you to a point where you realize this is empty, and I need something more. You know, it's it's a powerful message. Yep, yep. And this is the whole turning point. I mean, even textually. How many English teachers would approve of this sentence here? God, 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 right? Um, this is a pretty abrupt end to, to that silence. Um, we got to make time here. So can someone read Exodus 3, 1 through 15? So now, go. I am sending you the 
and they asked me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Thanks. So let's unpack this a little bit. I think it's interesting, uh, you know, Moses' initial, um, you know, reticence here. Uh, basically, he'll, he doesn't think that he or the Israelites is good enough, right? The Midrash traditionally kind of splits these into two questions. Who am I to go to Pharaoh, right? And then who are the Israelites? Like Jeff said, these are slave people, right? Who, who are, you know, what, who are we? Um, but God persists. This is where I had the note on that, you know, while we were yet sinners, um, the difference, I think, between God and Moses is, is God never forgets the rest of the story, right? Um, even in, in chapter 4, verse 1, uh, Moses says, you know, basically, if I go to them, but look, they will not believe me, nor will they heed my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Um, so this, this continual idea of, of, you know, Moses questioning um, the people. But then he says, uh, you know, what should I tell him? Uh, the God of your father has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Uh, and we talked about this a little bit the first week. Um, and, you know, the, the quotes you come across are, you know, rivers of, of ink have been spilled trying to explain the, uh, the meaning of these. And I can tell you for a fact we're not going to figure it out uh, this morning. Um, but, I, you know, we can, we can look at it a little bit. Um, the name God reveals to Moses uh, a yeah, a sure, a yeah. Uh, literally kind of translates to I will be who I will be. Uh, you could also go I will be what I will be. I am that I am, which is what we uh, hear often. Um, another one that, that kind of pops up is I am he who endures. Um, so he gives him this name, and then he kind of immediately shortens it, right, to, to what we now know as Yahweh, which there's no real t- translation, um, to English there, but I thought this was an interesting note. The name God reveals to Moses plays on the multiple illusions of the word Yahweh. Uh, the form Ayah from Hayah, to, which means to be, means I am or I will be there. However, Yahweh contains a W that refers back to the verb Hawa, uh, which means to blow. And I thought maybe this was an allusion to Genesis 2-7, uh, God blowing the breath of life in, into Adam. Uh, but anyways, Ayah is not a divine name. It's a first-person um, form of the verb hayah, um, this to be denotes a supportive being there or being with. Um, that the name ayah is meant to be read in this way emerges clearly enough from the context, since from this point God is constantly making his presence felt in both the word and deed as he watches over the fluctuating fortunes uh, of his people. Um, and then we're, we're getting close here, so I'm just going to read uh, kind of a midrash take on, on the name and and then we can add any other thoughts and, and call it a day. Um, Maharal, which is a, a rabbinic writer, takes the inner logic of God's self-naming a stage further. God's being is a being with. Uh, remember names uh, that we talked about as being relation, uh, signifying relationship. Um, I shall be with you. It will always respond to the need of the human, to the specific quality of the human cry. 
The particular idiom of a particular time, a particular place, a particular conception of God will draw forth an answering sense of redemption. Uh, from Moses' viewpoint, this name of God's no name at all it yields nothing constant, uh, nothing knowable. Uh, it is contingent, the very figure, figure of human desire. Um, it expresses a first-person form of God's name addressing the human involved in dialogue with the human. Uh, the human experience of redemption, then, will be episodic. It will remain a problematic existential desire, uh, kind of our theme through Exodus, right? Uh, God names himself in terms of that evolving human capacity. Uh, what is the meaning of a yeah, a sure, a yeah? Uh, I shall be what I shall be. As you are with me, so I am with you. If they open their hands to give charity, uh, quoting Deuteronomy 28.12, so I shall open my hands. As it said, uh, God shall open for you his goodly treasure. Um, so I like this idea. You know, God names himself in relationship to us, right? Um, you know, I think that's a, a pretty good way to, uh, to maybe leave it today. Does anyone have any thoughts on that? Yep. In other words, listen, these are all your gods. I am the God that actually exists. Yep. No, I like that. That's a nice plug for next week because we'll get into the, <laughs> the plagues. Um, and we talked a little bit about the first week. He doesn't give them a name. Like, I'm not in some series of lists of all your gods that you, you know, this, I'm, I'm the one uh, that will be that is. Uh, let's finish in a prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day, Lord. Uh, thank you that we can get into your word and thank you that we can find out more about you and in order to find out more about ourselves, Lord. Thank you for for knowing us. Thank you for knowing our names. Uh, and thank you for, for naming yourself that we can have a relationship with you, Lord. Just uh, we're, We ask that you would be with us as we go from this place and just help us to fear you, help us to walk with you, and, and help us to um, be lights for you each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.